Hi, this is Megan Davis, and you're listening to Stories Create Me, a podcast that explores the stories that we tell that make up our present day and eventually are going to influence our future. Each month, I explore a topic with a special guest. The topic varies, but the sentiment is always the same. The stories we tell become our future. And so, won't you join us as this narrative unfolds? So thanks for joining us today. Um, I have, I'm have i speaking with Gordon. Gordon, I'm going to let you just briefly talk about who you are, what you do, and why you do it. Sure thing. Uh, thanks for having me on. So my name is Gordon Young. I, I'm the principal of Ethological Consulting. We're a uh, professional ethics consulting group, which is a pretty abstract concept, I'm sure, for most people. Um, so what we do really is uh, a lot of people assume it's about coming in and telling people they're a good person or not. Um, but in reality, it's more along the lines of uh, building decision-making frameworks, uh, accountability mechanisms, governance frameworks, that sort of thing. But we come at it from a very fundamental sort of perspective. So when you say fundamental, what, what, does, what does that mean? Yeah, sure. Well, most of the time when you talk about leadership training or governance or something like that, you're usually talking about something very tactical, as in here is a problem, we need a solution for it. What we try and do, and we recognize that's absolutely necessary. All of our work is geared to be as practical as possible. Everyone who comes to one of our sessions walks away with something useful. But what we find is much, much more useful is not just going at it from a tactical level, but coming at it from a very fundamental values-based level. Less asking what went wrong and more asking why was it possible for this to go wrong in the first place? What contributing factors existed that made it possible for this to go wrong? Oh, I see. Okay. So that's interesting. So um, you're you're doing this rather holistic process um, of evaluating the entire system or framework that exists. It allows certain circumstances to evolve or thrive or come to a point that you don't want it to come to. Um, so it's, yeah. yeah. So it's um, you're not providing a band aid. You're actually <laughs> going back to make sure that the the the, the issue or wound or, you know, trying to figure out how to make this the best analogy possible. But that doesn't happen in the, in the first place. Exactly. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. a lot of the time, if you've got something go that bad, they're on the side of an organization or a government, for that matter, the first reaction is try to, yeah, as you said, put a band-aid over it, patch the wound and uh, mm-hmm. move on, get back to business, so to speak. But if that oftentimes yeah. ignores why that happened in the first place, and as a result, I mean, we keep seeing this, right? We keep seeing organizations have the same mistake repeat over and over again mm. and so yeah we need to uh, address why that's happening in the first place right and if we if we zoom out further if we if we or maybe this is more of a macro look or micro look as opposed to macro look but if yep. we look at individuals people they do tend to get involved in, involved in patterns and not oh, question yeah. it so you know on the individual level you've got all these people just doing what they've always done and then getting the results that maybe aren't the right results because they're not questioning their individual actions. Um, so I'm assuming that there's a lot of processes that you use to get people to evaluate their their independent thinking. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely, yeah. 
Um, and you, you find a lot in common, I imagine, with some of the work you do in the sense mm-hmm. that it's all very personal, very narrative in that sense. It's like, I mean, I, look, I could roll in and lay down a dozen different tools for decision-making, like the things that I think work, all the things mm-hmm. that I've yeah, demonstrated will work, but it's not going to connect. 90% of the time what we do is we start off with an articulation process, talking to the person and basically getting them to like explain to me what they value. Like, why are you here? Every time I ask that question in an organization, I get the same answer. It's, we're here to profit, right? We're here to make money. Uh, and, you know, I always give the same response. Yeah, that's, that's great. That's absolutely fundamental to the business, but that's just a means. I mean, there's a dozen different things you could do to make money if that was literally the only goal. So you're here for a reason why are you specifically here. Now, that might be a personal answer, might be a broader strategic answer. Mm. Once we get that sort of stuff on the table, then we sort of take it the other direction and start looking at some uh, critical analysis, so to speak, sort of being like, yeah, okay, now that's where you're at. That's great. Why? And more to the point, is it any good? Can I test it? Can I break it? Can you test it and improve it? And we try and leave people at the subsequent, you know, after the meetings and so forth, and especially after a more strategic process, you know, fast far stronger process state than when they started. Right. And so this is all, this is achieved anecdotally. So you're getting people to tell stories. Is that right? Yeah, oftentimes, yeah. I mean, there's really two components to, uh, to ethics in general, really. There's the obvious one, which is trying to figure out what the, what the right thing to do is. Now, ideally, that's data-driven. That's uh, something you prove, evidence, so on and so forth. It's uh, quite dispassionate if you do it well. But mm-hmm. there's a second component to it, which is oftentimes overlooked, and that's why people aren't already doing that. I mean, you'd think if it was so easy to demonstrate that one course of action is superior over another with the data available, then people would already be doing that. Mm-hmm. Right? But they aren't. And that's where the narrative comes in. Because mm-hmm. for better or worse, the vast majority of people establish their ethical framework in childhood. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you understand why. Uh, because, you know, you trust your parents, they're your framework, and then when you get down to business in your teenage and adult years, you're too busy doing actual work and the practical side of things to take that strategic view again. Mm-hmm. And as a result, most of the, most if not all of those ethical frameworks are developed using a sort of a narrative approach. You listen to people's stories. But they, mm-hmm. the world is through those stories. They mess with your worldview using stories and it's always more compelling coming from a trusted, personable, experience-based voice than it is reading some stats of a sheet. Right. So in that, is it almost like a hearing parables, you know, the old-fashioned kind of parable or fairy tale that has has a recommendation as to why you should or should not do something and then there's a very simple story that outlines why something is a good or a bad decision or yeah. cautionary tale and yeah. you know so it works it works for children and adults so this this really simple process of learning through antidote well it gives us what we crave you know yeah we, we need simplicity when you're talking about values more or more to the point when you're talking about uh, how to conduct yourself in the world more often than not what we really really want and what we never ever get is simplicity Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, I just want a clear answer on this. Like, should I not talk to strangers or should I talk to strangers? Just, just tell me. Mm-hmm. You know, like, help me out here. Life's complicated enough dealing with big strategic or, you know, tactical questions like the work, mm-hmm. relationships, so on and so forth. So when it's down to something as big and terrifying, which most people aren't terribly equipped for, you know, such as, you know, am I a good person or not? 
Not that none of these surprised people tend to default towards a sort of a rules-based approach. Do these things, don't do these things, and you'll be a good person, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty compelling, but it's also kind of simplistic, and as a result, you either you either follow it to the letter and tend to make a bunch of mistakes or, you know, wreck your own life in the process, or, I mean, you can imagine what would happen if you were honest all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, all the time. That's yes. That's going to end badly. <laughs> yeah, I think, what was that movie? There was a movie about that. Ah, yeah, I think it was. <laughs> I think it was um, Jim Carrey. Uh, yeah, and he couldn't yeah. tell a lie. He got a curse put on him at a, his kid's birthday party or something, and he couldn't tell lies. No, exactly. It's funny, actually, that illustrates a nice little admission we tend to build into that that rule as well. You know, you always tell it, you have to be honest. You have to mm-hmm. be honest. But we never mention uh, lying by admission, do we? Right. We never, we never mention keeping anything back. I mean, you want to get really, really hardcore about that. That is lying. You are deliberately withholding information to lead a person to a different perspective than is accurate. Yeah. So why isn't that on the list? Because it mm-hmm. would be a little bit too much, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. It's not surprising people default to that sort of thing. And yeah, they either go to it a little bit too hard, or what happens more often, we tend to find is they tend to make exceptions to those rules and then just feel really, really bad about it. Which yeah. is not exactly what I'd call a productive situation. I mean, you feeling bad about things, one, doesn't actually improve your behavior, and two, just, you know, tends to encourage you towards destructive behaviors as a result. Uh-huh. So, well, yeah, I mean, a better framework is required, but again, who takes that time to sit down and say, man, I don't find my decision-making methods any good, and what even are they? Right. So I've been listening to audiobooks recently, and my, my newest audiobook I've been listening to is um, Homo Deus. Um, I've just totally blanked on his name. Uh, sure. So this is interesting because he is essentially throughout this book talking about the, you know, the ethical kind of frameworks that we're building around humanism. Mm-hmm. The humans are the highest authority mm-hmm. power. What we want, what we need is the most important thing in the world as opposed to um, this mm. is really, you know, paraphrasing. I mean, this is super, I'm really boiling this down into a simplistic, <laughs> you know, yep. sentence. Um, but then opposed to 300 years ago when God was the the authority and mm. you looked for people who could guide you to ensure that you are following the laws of God or the laws of some sort of mystical framework that would, that could guide you in your decision making. Yep. And, you know, now, so now we're into this, we're into this, this space where, where, uh, we go to a therapist that a therapist is somewhat akin to what was once the priest and you say, Hey, um, I cheated on my partner. And then instead of passing judgment or telling you what you should or shouldn't be doing, the therapist says, So how does that make you feel? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then you start evaluating your decision-making process. Why did I do that? Was that a good thing? Was that a bad thing? Yeah, exactly. We're increasingly moving into a space where we don't have authority as such in our lives anymore. Mm-hmm. We have just a series of frameworks that we have to negotiate. So what is right in work context is not maybe right in family context. What is right for the family might not work at a large government scale. Um, or when you try to align all these different components of your life, it's increasingly difficult because of the value framework mm. 
constant shifting, and then it's always up to us to make sure that we're doing the right thing. Yeah, exactly. Which is where the two different frameworks we employ come in. So there's, broadly speaking, I'll have my philosophy professor would kill me if you heard me say this last, but there's, broadly speaking, two schools of thought when it comes to ethics, right? You've got a mm-hmm. deontological approach, which is a fancy word for a set of rules, which is what we discussed before. They tend to be oversimplistic, but they're very, very good at accounting for human nature in the sense mm-hmm. of, like, you're always going to want to make an exception, right? And mm-hmm. clear, established, articulated rules that you can write down and communicate between a group of people, make sure that it's very hard to make that exception. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we still find ways. But then there's the other school of thought, which is utilitarianism or consequentialism, which is basically says the rules don't matter. Rules are constructs. They're handy when they're handy. But what we should really be concerned about is whether or not it's the consequences of what we do whatever rule we put in place. So what you end up with there is more of a method. It's more of a cost-benefit sort of analysis. Bearing in mind, mm-hmm. when I say cost-benefit, I'm not talking about economics. I'm talking, well, not just economics. I'm talking mm-hmm. about consequences for good consequences, bad consequences, which one's the best possible option. You should always choose the one with the minimal cost, maximum benefit. Now, that, generally speaking, is going to get you a better answer. and It sort of helps deal with the problem you were highlighting in the sense that it's not a set of rules that need to shift all the time. It's a method that can be applied in any given situation, right? Like, so it doesn't matter when you are, where you are, what the culture is, what the circumstances are, how much money you have at the bank, you can apply that cost-benefit sort of approach and theoretically at least, they'll come up with the perfect answer or the best available answer based on the information you have. Problem, of course, is that that is just so easy to corrupt. I mean, all you need to do is ignore any information you don't want to hear, and suddenly you've got an answer you like, which is not necessarily a valid answer. Mm-hmm. So generally speaking, like, we expose all of our, um, all our clients to both of those sort of theories and sort of demonstrate the, the you know the strengths and weaknesses of both. And we really do encourage them to use both, honestly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, use a, a rules-based approach when you're... Uh, <laughs> where you feel like you can't necessarily rely on your own objectivity. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, cost-benefit sort of approach, a utilitarian approach is uh, going to get you a better result. Right. So you just need to know when to use either and also understand how comfortable you are within yeah. your own decision-making process. So yeah. when you go in and you look at these large system-wide problems and then talking to the individuals in that system and you're you're kind of charting out okay this is what's happening and you have anecdotal evidence around that or it could be data that supports that these things are happening um so you you know then are you moving them into this bird's eye view of problems so so the people can make meaning from it so are, are you actually are you moving them into that larger scale like and this is where narrative really works is that bird's eye view of you know thematically what's happening here to all of us and yeah. how do our collective stories build into this larger narrative and then is this the narrative that we want you know do we want to be part of a happy love story or do we want to be part of like some kind i don't know friday the 13th Slasher <laughs> horror film, right? <laughs> it's like, what kind of larger themes do we want to be associated with? Is that exactly. this, this is that whole dumb 
value. Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. Uh, yeah, offbone, the big picture stuff is where you get the real value, and that's absolutely where everything has to start. Now, you can get down to specific tools, like I was saying before, like that whole deontology, utilitarianism thing. That's, those are practical tools. They won't work if anyone goes in with bad faith, so to speak, or goes in with the wrong sort of perspective. And so that bird's eye view, that big scale stuff, which is why I admire your work, is really good at establishing that, is um, getting that sort of idea of why are we here? Like, what is this about? Now, that's like uh, that's the sort of question that annoys absolutely everyone I skip to, because mm-hmm. well, for starters, it sounds way too obvious, even though nearly everyone I ask struggles to actually answer it. But secondly, it's sort of uh, if you want an existential crisis, that's how you get an existential crisis. You ask a person what the point is. Uh, mm-hmm. The funny thing is, is that nearly everyone in an organisation or in their personal lives, or in any capacity, really should be able to answer that. Mm-hmm. I mean. When you're there, you're doing it. Presumably mm-hmm. there is a reason for it. I mean, you didn't just show up spontaneously. So what is it? You know, mm-hmm. and like articulating that can be very, very painful because more often than not, people don't actually know consciously. Right. Like, or in some cases, it could just be that, you know, they just sort of fell into it. It was just sort of one thing led to another and here we are. Yeah. We're living in this time of humanism and how does that make you feel and what's the best decision for you? Hmm. It's interesting that this is such a pervasive experience and that people are more often than not saying, I don't know, and that, hmm. that there hasn't been a lot of examination despite despite whoever it was who first said in that, in that context, like a psychologist, maybe it was Freud, and how does that make you feel? I mean, this is a pervasive hmm. you know, comment and... and um, probably like the cornerstone of multiple movies that are, you know, made for the last 50 years. Um, so it's interesting that there's this massive disconnect there. Yeah. In some regards, I think that's a generational thing. Um, yeah. So, okay, I've got, this is a bit of a theory I've been floating for a while. Okay. So you put, it, put it this way, around. My grandparents, if my grandparents didn't work, my grandparents would have died. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like, flat out, no question about it, death. You know, maybe they had some friends around them and family who would have been able to support them, but there was limited faith in their resources and, you know, you work or you die. That lends a pretty serious purpose to one's life. You know, mm-hmm. why, why do you go to work? Why do you get up in the morning and go to work? Because I will literally die if I don't, you know, and all mm-hmm. my children, everyone around me depends on me, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Now, that, that's not a good thing in and of itself. I mean, you don't want that looming threat of, you know, death hanging over you or disaster hanging over you like that and I'm glad mm. that we don't have it but then you look what's happened with my parents my parents were around you know around about when they were young about my age about 20s 30s I mean they didn't have to work there was a welfare state in place there was a lot more social services in place everything was a bit more developed their life would have sucked and I mean it would have been really quite bad but they wouldn't have died mm. compare that to my generation or the coming up generation I don't have to work I flat out do not have to work, and I will get by. It won't be fun, mm. but I'll be all right. Mm-hmm. Now, you know what, in many regards, I think that's fantastic. Of course it is. No one should have to fear <laughs> absolute mm. disaster because of unemployment or changing circumstances, for example. But on the other hand, that massive, overwhelming sense of purpose is gone. Mm-hmm. But I haven't been handed a purpose. Life has not given me a purpose, and that leaves a very, very big gulf. And that can be a wonderful thing or it can be a terrible thing. It's a wonderful thing in the sense that I now have the option to choose my own purpose. 
I can go out in life and I can decide who I am, what I want to do. I've traveled. I've done a whole bunch of stuff. I've had an education. And I've been able to get my head around my spot in the world, and I feel pretty good about things now. But a lot of people don't get that opportunity, or a lot of people don't simply don't ask those necessary questions because they are pretty unpleasant. Mm-hmm. I'm the first one to admit that that process of self-discovery is incredibly traumatic, that it's mm-hmm. also absolutely necessary if you want to decide where your purpose is. So unfortunately, what we're seeing a lot of now, in my assessment at least, is a lot of people uh, looking for purpose and not finding it, or not being able to find it because they're not asking the right questions. Mm. I think that that's really interesting, the not asking the right questions. And um, this was something that I came across. first. The first time I heard this was on a Tim Ferriss, Tim Ferriss interview, so on his podcast, and mm. I can't remember the guest. But he said, the quality of your life is dictated by the quality of the questions that you ask. <laughs> and, you know, I, I just thought, yeah, ab- mm. uh, that is, that you just nailed it. That's it. And, um, and, you know, we're not, we're, we're shifting from do as you're told to mm. follow your bliss, you know, mm. which is interestingly enough. Joseph Campbell, who wrote that, you know, over a hundred years ago, but but it's you know now this this kind of generational cry of follow your bliss and but how how do you do that? And so Joseph Campbell said, how you do that is you look at myths, you look at the the way that we systematically have built stories throughout time that tell us how to live life. Yeah, exactly. Those might be religions or. Um, antidotal stories of how cultures are born or, mm-hmm. you know, this, this takes a lot of forms, but the process is dictated by something that's not new. It's, we've been doing it for, in fact, a millennia or more. And mm-hmm. um, our ability to examine life is something that, you know, since Socrates and Plato and a lot mm-hmm. of other people thousands of years ago have been, you know, has been held up in regard because they've been able to ask such good questions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, like, that's actually kind of uh, illustrative in its own way. Is like, like Socrates or Plato or um, even even romanticist authors and so on and so forth. There's always been people asking these questions, but it's always been a fairly limited number of people up until now that had the capacity to ask those questions in the sense that not to, not to disparage my own field, but philosophy is a bit of a rich man's game in the sense that you can you have the time and the resources not to be actually worrying about you know day-to-day practicalities. You've got the time to sit down and think about this sort of stuff. Mm. Of course, in our modern society, um, for virtually everyone in Australia, well, with notable exceptions, is more or less a rich man in the sense that we have, you know, that abundance and that redundancy in the system and those social securities that mean that we can all do that if we wish. But it's pretty terrifying. Mm. I think it's interesting if we go back again, so so we look at these guys like Plato and Socrates, and there might have been some women in there, but perhaps their stories weren't recorded. Quite likely, yeah. (laughs) Most likely that was the case, but... um, but yeah, so we've got these people who their their approach and their their philosophies and how they approach life are recorded. And if you really look at that, it's not the questions and the way that they approach life is not dramatically different today because our motivators are the same. The things that we ultimately all want are exactly the same. We're still human beings, so there's still validity in these questions and the way that they 
address concerns that people have. Um, and so I'm wondering if the case is, is that we have ever increasing questions because we have ever increasing knowledge. So, you know, we're not answering, we're not solving anything really. We're just opening up more doors to more possible futures or more possible outcomes. Hmm. And this is, this is, you know, this is scary. This is uh, something that people don't know how to deal with. You know, what, what do you see as the, as the way that we could start addressing this? You know, is this about teaching philosophy in schools again? Because mm-hmm. the, that used to be kind of a fundamental part of, of any education was you must understand mm-hmm. historically ethics and philosophy. Mm-hmm. And this is not so much the case now. Despite yeah, the true. fact that we have more questions and not less. Well, it certainly hasn't become less relevant, put it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, it's, uh, well, yeah, look, this is kind of a tricky one. If there's one skill I'd like to, well, to be honest with you, that articulation process I described, I've actually gone out to a few schools and sort of like coached youth through it to a degree because it's, it's, it's fundamental, really. I mean, if you don't have that set down, then what are you doing in your practical work? You know, like, like, what are you working towards? Any business person I've ever worked with will tell you quite clearly you need to have goals very quite clearly established before you can mm. put a project in place because otherwise what are you doing? Mm. What are you measuring against? What is the point? And how will we know if the money was well spent and if we got a good return? I don't understand why they, <laughs> why people think that they don't also have to do the same thing in terms of their own motivations and goals, right? Like, what, mm-hmm. are, you, what are you trying to do? In terms of dealing with the abundance of information, that's definitely a bit of a difficulty. Um, like as you say, we're only going to get more information as time goes on and firing some sort of AI-induced or cybernetics-induced massive boost to our brain capacity, which, as you say, hasn't changed since for 200,000 years. Mm. Uh, we're not going to be able to deal with it. I already can't deal with the vast amount of information that comes in through my inbox, let alone all of scientific knowledge. So what I try and encourage is psychological resilience, so to speak. It's not saying that you should be able to process vast amounts of data or be across everything at all times, but more dealing with how you deal with that information more to the point. There's a lot of anxiety springing up at the moment and well, it always has been for a long time based on that vast amount of information coming in and not having a good framework for processing it, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Sort of being like what prioritization in particular, keeping a big perspective, and that comes back again to that whole question of what's important to you in the first place. And so being able to put frameworks in place and then practice them in particular, that's usually the missing uh, element and something we aspire to, well, something we definitely do provide through the training we do here, but um, yeah, and to get it more broadly, you need to practice it. You need to understand that you, there is always going to be this data. There is always going to be some disaster going on somewhere else. And you need to prioritize where your mental energy goes into what is most productive towards whatever those goals are that you're trying to achieve. Of course, contingent on the point that those goals are any good. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. So you need to ask the right questions, get the right goals, and then understand how all of that lines up or how you create the best amount of alignment between priorities, information, goals. Yeah. So fundamentally yeah. starts with the questions. Yep. And self care is an enormous component of that of course, right? Like mm-hmm. there's no point burning your ass self out in pursuit of a goal because that's just gonna prevent you from actually achieving the goal in any capacity really. Yeah. 
So yeah, narratives are crucial to all of this, like in particular. So I've, I've done a lot of work inside the environment field for about no, nearly a decade. And wow. um, seeing the narratives inside there, they can take that a group of people in a really positive direction or a really negative direction, depending mm. on how they're told. So this is not uncommon, in fact, it's remarkably common for every now and then a group of people in the environment field to get a bit of a apocalyptic vibe going on. Yeah. Thing like we're screwed, you know. Like let's just all be completely honest here. We're totally screwed. Mm-hmm. You know, we're doing all this good stuff. And we're all making some progress, and yeah, that's all fine. But we're we are ultimately screwed. And uh, <laughs> I, you, you can see that sort of thing snowballs, and it takes the energy out of everything. Now, regardless of whether it's accurate or not, to be perfect, and it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we may have hit some sort of colossal tipping point. It doesn't change the fact that if we let it slide even further, it will subsequently get even worse. Mm-hmm. And so there's no point in thinking in that direction. It's good to have a release from time to time, but it's, you know, that narrative needs to be checked. Mm. It's, it's not, well, it, it's accurate in uh, one sense, but it misses that bigger picture, that bird's eye view you were talking about before. Yeah. Whereas on the other hand, and I'm absolutely certain you've seen it, is if you get a positive narrative going inside a group of people, it's amazing what that group can do. Mm-hmm. Like, motivation is such a massive component and it's like all these stuff we call them soft skills you know the ability to communicate with other people the ability to facilitate discussions the ability to understand what motivates another person we call them soft skills but they are absolutely fundamental to every practical outcome yeah yeah and uh, the ability to tell and control and guide a narrative really does speak to that yeah if you look at any successful political campaign of let's say the last 50 years, let's say the, 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 the mass media modern age. So, you know, maybe even more now. Maybe we're looking at 70 years of mass media. Uh, if you look at any successful political campaign, they were successful because they understood how to control the narrative. Yes. That is fundamentally how they achieved power. Mm. And all of the things that those people did are available to anyone mm, so, you know not you know there's there's some pretty obvious comments I could make about this obvious person but you don't <laughs> have to, you know I don't even have to say who it is you don't have to be intelligent no <laughs> so, you really don't it's not about who's the smartest it's not about who has the most resources it's about who is putting together the best narrative so not a story but a collection of stories that makes sense to a number of different people and can be interpreted because narratives have to evolve and for the evolution of a narrative to happen it has to be interpreted by individuals they can put their own meaning to it so you know this is crucial for creating cohesion and movement and an action and and then it is available to anyone. Absolutely, yeah, and massively, massively influential, I would say. Now, to put the other hat back on, I was saying before, there's two components of ethics in the sense that, you know, the second one which we're discussing now is understanding what motivates a person and how they ended up in the, the position they are and the mm-hmm. position they're making now. And narrative is massive to that, but it's worth pointing out that as uh, the person who'll go unnamed is illustrating so nicely at the moment, uh, <laughs> just because the narrative is persuasive doesn't necessarily mean it's valid. You yeah. Know? 
and that, no, it's the same thing, we're talking about the environment movement before and that apocalyptic bias, it, that can be a serious concern. And probably, I mean, obviously you can do it deliberately if you're awful. Um, but, and there will be consequences to that, incidentally. I mean, you build a, yeah. one misperception about the field of ethics is that it's, uh, a matter of opinion. Mm. Whereas a good ethical, well, ethics, if they're constructed well, will lead to positive consequences. Whereas if they're constructed badly, as uh, we're seeing up in the US at the moment, that won't work. Mm-hmm. What he's proposing will not work. We've tried mm-hmm. it before. It didn't work. So, you know, we're going to see a bit of a collapse there. But mm-hmm. inside an organization in particular, you've got to watch out for, like, misleading or inaccurate narratives. And unfortunately, see it a lot in the upper management level of things. People telling the rest of the organization that things are fantastic. Things are great. You are all working really, really hard, and we'll get towards that goal. Meanwhile, everyone on the lower levels knows that's a load of crap. And they know that there are problems, there are extensive problems, and they aren't the only conclusion they can come to there is either that the management is lying to them, or the management doesn't know. Neither of these are good. Yeah. And to be honest with you, it's actually worse if you manage to convince the staff that things are good because then you're just going to all dive down that habit hole together with no, you know, consideration for things that need to be done. Yeah. So, yeah, you need to be very careful of that. Yeah. And that, I, I, um, I had a discussion recently with a, with a client and, you know, they said, uh, we've got big changes coming and some of these changes are not going to be good for some people and you know and I said I completely understand that um, and I said but I think if you try to put out stories that don't reflect those concerns you're going to create more distance and more um, disparate behavior and that you're going to have like multiple people doing different things because they're going to think what I do doesn't matter or I'm not part of this story because I can, I don't think that I'm, I'm going to be invited along on the, the journey. Um, yeah. you know, so I, I said, it's, I said, it's going to, you're going to, I said, it's a challenge and there's, there's actually multiple ways that you can handle this because we don't know what's going to happen around the corner. We actually, we understand that this is something that's eventually going to happen, but we don't know how it's going to happen exactly. Mm. And we also don't know what new changes are around the bend that could change it. So I said, I don't know that you want to start adhering to this particular outcomes now, mm. but at the same time, you don't want to not talk about it because you're going to cause distrust either way. <laughs> yeah, well, this is it, isn't it? I mean, you can either be inclusive or you can be exclusive. And I understand there's value in both methods depending on the circumstance, right? But yeah. A sort of flexible, ethical approach that... <laughs> still being very, very clear on what the cost of benefits are. Uh, I mean, you, your staff are going to pick up on it. And to be honest, like, one, they're not stupid and they're no. somewhat intuitive. If they smell concern or private meetings and all the other warning signs, they're going to get the back of their the hairs on the back of the neck and they're going to go up. Mm-hmm. And whether or not they act on that, who knows? But here's the thing. If you, the first thing you hear about from an organization about any sort of problem within the organization that might result in some you know, necessary changes. Is you being called in and fired? Well, why wouldn't you burn the place down on the way out? You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Steal stuff, wreck stuff, report every single violation you're aware of. I've done it myself. 
Why not? Yeah. Yeah. Right? Whereas, like, if the people are involved in the process, they might at least have some sort of understanding of what's going on and yeah. why this is the case. They won't be happy. They won't be happy, yeah. but that anger is going to be there regardless. Yeah. Whereas, to be honest, one of the best case scenarios I've ever heard of was that it was quite, it was delivered to them well in advance, saying that we're, we're going into a bit of trouble here, we're under some financial stress, and certain cuts are going to be necessary to be made. That organization, which I can't remember its name off the top of my head, was basically they would tell, look, this is the scenario, we're going to have to let go of a whole bunch of jobs because we need to save this amount of money. What do you think we can do about this? That team found a dozen different ways of cutting back on costs. And I think I'm going to let like two people go out of a planned 100. Oh, wow. Right? Why not? Yeah. Why not tap into your staff's ingenuity? Yeah. I mean, they're right there. And if you've got a good workplace culture, which is sort of a prerequisite for this, I have to admit, mm. then those people will want to help as mm -hmm. opposed to, you know, want to fight you or stab you in the back at the first opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. The the there's a friend of mine this is a long time ago now this is probably 10 years ago but their firm was going through some really hard times and they said this is the option everyone takes a pay cut mm -hmm. and keeps their job or we have to eliminate i think with three or four jobs three or four yeah. roles and they said what was what do you want to do everyone chose to take a pay cut right and so you work at solidarity and you're, you're taking the long term yeah. view in that sense, you know, saying that, yeah. you know, okay, maybe things will suck for a bit, but they might improve again. Right. Yeah. And then yeah. if somebody decides, look, it's not for me, and they get another job, there's one maybe possible problem solved. Or Absolutely. It, yeah. Giving people options and information is not necessarily a bad thing. And... I think, you know, because we're coming into the, well, how does that make you feel or follow your bliss world? Um, you know, we're going to have to practice what we preach because we yeah. still have these confines around us of the industrial revolution and we're like these Ottomans or, or Ottomans or what am I trying to say? Uh, we're, we're, we're like, we have the automations. Automations. That's it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'll get there eventually. Um, <laughs> And so they, yeah, so we have, you know, these perceptions around work that, that are still reinforced that, that it's about production and delivery and compliance. But increasingly, people have too much information anyway. So asking yeah. them not to use it is increasingly problematic. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. I mean, that whole idea of the automaton, as you said before, I think, I can't remember the name of the fellow who said it, but there was, a, there was a great quote that goes around saying, you can either train a human being to be a perfect machine or an imperfect human. Mm. And I mean, you've seen the photo. You've, you've seen footage of people working in uh, manufacturing plants doing the same single task repetitively. They get incredibly good at it. Mm -hmm. But they do that at the expense of, you know, applying any creativity or critical thinking to the process. Mm -hmm. right. Now, increasingly, that question is sort of being answered by its own right because there's no human being alive that can do that job better than a machine can. Yeah. And so that whole uncritical human labor aspect of things is very quickly disappearing. And, I mean, that's good in one sense. The whole automation crisis in itself is a totally different topic, but um, very challenging. Uh, why reduce a human being in your employment down to the ability to move a thing, you know what I mean? Or the ability to do a single repetitive task. Yeah. I appreciate it's necessary from time to time, 
Yeah. But even menial staff have, in staff and menial roles, have the capacity to offer enormous service to your organization. Why not have yeah. it? And, and the, all these different design thinking and innovation models that are coming into organizations. The interesting thing is, is when they're, you know, when people are asked to come in to solve problems, now the, the, they're not there to the consultant or the person in that job role to create new solutions isn't there necessarily to find it on their own. They're there to help the people who are already doing the work articulate what they need because nobody knows their job better than the person doing the job. Exactly. And how condescending is it to suggest otherwise? Exactly, yeah. And so people who are really good in these design thinking methodologies are really just conduits. They're there to find the right person with the right amount of information and then and then and then you know amplifying it or putting it up and down the, the chain of, of people that need to hear the message but ultimately they use, most of the solutions come from the people who are experiencing problems and not from some other group who randomly are just called in to come and look at things and think about it for you know even if it's a, even if it's a year they still don't have the experience of the person who's been in that role no, never. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the whole thing. Is that any good consultant recognizes the limitations of their own expertise. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a professional ethicist for crying out loud. I'm good at yeah. ethics. I'm good at environmental management to a degree, but that's not really what we do. Like, if I come into an IT organization or a banking organization or a local government, then the idea that I know that person's job better than them is absurd, like flat mm-hmm. out absurd. And even the merest hint of that sort of arrogance is going to completely throw anyone from talking to me. I mean, mm-hmm. my job, as you say, like it's exactly as you say, the job is to go in and help them to articulate what they want and what they do in order to empower them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's absolutely nothing to do with me. Um, unfortunately, it's something we see a lot of in consulting in general or in a lot of senior management style sort of thing and training mm-hmm. is a person who comes in and says, hey, I'm fantastic, I did this. I've done mm. that, and like, and what do I need to do with that information? You know, yeah, like, yeah. that's great. Well done, you. Go yep. tell your friends. I, I've never really <laughs> got my head around that whole inspirational talk side of thing. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. I I agree. Um, I don't ever want to be an inspirational speaker. <laughs> It's not a, you know, no, not to say that, that they don't have their place. I've enjoyed more than a few, speak, you know, speakers in my time. That They were only there to inspire, and, you know, great. But um, at the same time, I'm, I'm much too, uh, I'm much too practical and functional. Like, in, in that I, you know, I want to not inspire people. I want to facilitate people. So I want to give people tools, and I want to help people understand manage and process and um and and then through that process maybe they'll feel inspired maybe they'll feel like they can manage things even if they just decide to think about something in a different way or ask a different question i'm happy i think fantastic this is an amazing result you know Um, and yeah I do have to admit to a certain begrudging respect for the sort of people that can run a training seminar where everyone walks out the far side saying, oh, that was fantastic, and then immediately forgets that it ever happened. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's a yeah. certain group hypnosis going on there. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I mean, mm. you know, maybe it's just fun. And that's great. Like sometimes yeah, just, have, just having a great fun time and you feel really good. And, and mm. that maybe you didn't have anything firm in as, as a takeaway, but, um, you know, that's, that's important too. But it's, yeah. But then I, I guess I'm just too practical. Yeah. <laughs> I'm too <laughs> As we said before, it depends what you're trying to achieve, doesn't it? Then yeah. it's your goal is to help improve, the, like help improve the function of the workplace, improve the enjoyment of their work and or their life, help them articulate their goals a little bit more, or build a better narrative inside the organisation. Then uh, yeah, that's going to work. <laughs> so yeah. you need different tactics. Yeah, Just absolutely. Have a good time, then yeah, I mean, mind you, you could probably do the same thing with a case of beer, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, or, you know, have certain aspects of the work reflect a good time um, yeah. as well. Yeah, or maybe just have a party afterwards. I mean, I love parties. So there's no problem with that. No, um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I just know I'm mindful that we've gone over time. So I just want to, uh, you know, be respectful of that. It's, but just in closing, you know, if, if there was anything any kind of takeaway that you could give to to people who've listened to this conversation um, and they're thinking, okay, cool, so you've made all these really great points, but, like, honestly, where do I start? Like, where do I start on my self-evaluating painful, horrible journey? You know, how do I start? Yeah. How, do I, how do I start safely questioning things without coming into some sort of existential crisis? <laughs> uh, okay, there's two things I'd recommend. One, one bigger scale, one smaller scale. Uh, so the first one, no, go on about this for hours. Take 30 minutes, some point during the day, go for a walk and don't listen to anything. Don't take anyone with you. Don't plug in your headphones. Don't look at your phone. Just, in fact, don't even take the phone because it's going to get very, very tempting. And seriously, flat out challenge you, I challenge you to walk around for 30 minutes in your own head. And see where that takes you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that can be pretty damn confronting for people. Uh, mm-hmm. those because it sort of does tend to encourage you towards the sort of big question thinking that we all try and avoid to some degree. And like, just ask yourself, like, what, what, what do I want? Like, seriously, like, if you want something to frame that around, say, I'm 95, I'm sitting on my bed, I don't have a lot of future left. So what was the value most important thing to me that I achieved over that time, time space? Right? Now that's, mm-hmm. yeah, that's going to be confronting. Deal with it. It's a question you're already dealing with. You're just not actually answering it. All right. That's something mm-hmm. you're just going to have to suck up and ask if you want the, you know, that creeping anxiety to go away. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one, much more practical. See, I, I reckon you get a huge amount of value out of this. Everyone's got someone they dislike, right? You're mm-hmm. someone in your workspace, someone in on social media, it doesn't matter. Someone you just really don't like. It might be issues based. Now, I don't want you to ask that you disagree with them. I understand that you already do. Or maybe you don't, don't think about it on a practical level, like you disagree with them on these topics or because they're an asshole or something along those lines. Here's a better question. Why? Why do you disagree with them? What about them fundamentally? Like, what motivates their behavior in such a way that you end up disagreeing with them? Mm. Now, again, that sounds like a big pointless question when I pose it most of the time, but you've got to remember what the point of this is. And it's like, we're talking about leverage here. Now, if you disagree with them, either you're wrong or they're wrong. If they're wrong, you want to change their mind, yeah? Mm-hmm. Well, you need to figure out what motivates them in order to be able to do that. Right? So, 
you could be happy just having a little stress of boiling away in your life for the rest of your life. Go nuts. But if you want to fix things, ask that question. Like, why are they like this? Like, what's motivating that? See that again? I find you can get a huge amount of uh, interesting information just by asking that one question. Hmm. Anyway, yeah. just a couple of takeaways. <laughs> yeah. And you don't need to confront them. You don't need to say, I don't like you. Like, this no. is really just, this is just you asking these questions. What about this person's situation problem? Yeah. Do I really just not like? And then why do I feel that way? Yeah, and then, exactly. Yeah. And then, if you, because if you don't like something, the only ability, the only way that you can influence something is to understand your point of view clearly. Yeah, exactly. No one wants to get old Sun Tzu on you, him and the art of war and everything, but, you know, understand yourself, <laughs> understand your enemy. Yeah. Or opponents in a workplace, more to the point. And yeah. that, that's the basic formula for success. Like, make friends and influence people, understand yourself what you want, understand them what they want, and that's 90% of the way of getting where you want to be. Mm, mm. Very good advice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very. It's it's funny. A lot of what I end up telling people sounds incredibly obvious, but no one ever does it. <laughs> yeah. You know? Like maybe yeah. just go and give it a try. I know it sounds incredibly ridiculously simplistic, but you know, try it. Tell what have you got to lose? What have you yeah, got to lose? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Thanks so much. Um, no problem. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of Stories Create Me. Thank you to all my guests, and I'd also like to thank my sound designer, Kyle Barber Hoffman, for creating the magical sounds that you hear while listening. Join us next month when we'll continue to explore the stories that create our world on Stories Create Me.